For the first time in more than five and a half years, we finally tonight have a few new answers to a question that has loomed over Indiana and over the town of Delphi. Who killed Abby Williams and Libby Jones? From the end of the bridge to, you gotta go through. Now, I believe that the bodies were found about to. Born from a family's grief and determination. In April of 2020, Army soldier Vanessa Guillen went missing while stationed at one of the largest military installations. You hear that little music in the background that goes, don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious. Right. Knew about it or was there. It's, he's as guilty as the person who committed Chilling the details in the arrest of a suspected serial killer caught before he could strike again. Him, they, they, they dropped the ball, man. Like, they said he went AWOL. Mm. And that, uh, that he was a deserter and nobody went to look for Today is not a day to celebrate. <clears throat> but the arrest of Richard M. Allen of Delphi on two counts of murder. Like I said, we're going back. We were asked last time to kind of talk about the food, uh, the grub truck video and kind of give our perspective of it. The, the, the press release from the police department indicated that they're still trying to put pieces together from that night. Does that does that worry you in any at any point uh, or at any bit that they're still trying to put those pieces together? It's been over five weeks since little Kaylee Anthony vanished. Her mother, Casey, has been arrested for lying to police. She's being held without bail. Hey, greetings from the year three thousand. It still sucks. This is Phil J. Fry, and you're listening to. The Drunken Turkey Show. You're one stop for this sort of thing. Hit that button, like and subscribe. You know what to do, just like every other podcast. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to The Drunk Turkey Show. I'm your host. Alongside with me, as always, as usual, Jaime G and Big Blue. The uh, He just got taken out by the FBI again. Uh, Jaime, how you doing tonight? I'm doing good, man. Did you see me Vogue? I started off with the Vogue. I saw you doing something. I couldn't identify what it was. Uh, might, might have been gang gang signs. I'm not really sure. I thought it was gas. Either way, it was looked pretty cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome, everybody, to the show. We have uh, currently 167 people in the live chat. Thank you so much for uh, coming in. We have a special guest tonight. We also have a new member. Thank you so much, Jilly04, for becoming the newest member. We appreciate thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we have a new guest, a special guest in the show, in the, in the house tonight. Um, she's a journalist. He's a lawyer. Together, they're murder sheet. Welcome, Anya Kane and attorney Kevin Greenlee. How's it going, y'all? Good. How are Pretty you? Good. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, being a part of the show. Big fan. I've listened to you guys for a little while, um, mostly covering uh, the Delphi case recently found out you guys were also covering the Idaho uh, case. Um, well, we'll start off with uh, y'all's introduction. Um, can y'all introduce yourselves to everybody? Certainly. Um, my name's Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. I, I used to be a retail reporter and now I have a true crime podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm uh, an attorney. Anya and I met because of our interest in true crime and we ended up falling in love, getting married and having a podcast it's a little bit morbid but i think people who know us are like yeah that fits um and we're, yeah we are married and sometimes you're like why are you in the same house 
Um, that is why. <laughs> well, that is awesome. Congrats to you guys. Um, so did you guys start the podcast before the marriage or did that come afterwards? It was podcast then marriage. Yes. Yes. Um, we were very serious. We were pretty committed, but the, the marriage came afterwards. And it was definitely the podcast was a test. It was a good test. If you get through podcasting with someone, marriage is easy. Also, keep in mind, we started the podcast in like a 350 square foot studio apartment in Brooklyn. So if you can do that in there while being business partners and in a relationship, it's trial by fire. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, what attracted you guys to do? podcasting and true crime um i think both of us have listened to true crime podcasts for years and uh certainly saw a realm where like it, the barriers to entry are pretty low but there's an opportunity to really form a connection with the listeners and get them some interesting information and kind of have your own creative control over what you're doing sort of much like being on youtube and so i think we were just sort of like you know but we're also shy, so we like showing our faces that much would have been would have been overwhelming. So we can hide behind the microphone a little bit, and um, <laughs> yeah. So I think that's what. And we kept on finding interesting crime stories that weren't getting a lot of coverage, and so we thought if we do a podcast, maybe we can tell some of those stories. And then along the way, we uh, started uh, covering Delphi. Yeah. Thanks. So with Delphi, did you guys uh, just start covering it immediately, or was that a case that had happened? And then you covered it a little bit later down the road. Yeah, we definitely covered it a little bit later down the road. Our focus at first was actually restaurant murders, which we're still interested in, but we've sort of broadened our approach. Um, mm -hmm. When we moved back to Indiana, Delphi was definitely the case everyone was talking about. Um, Kevin's sister actually kept on recommending that we cover it and saying, like, why can't we get some new information? It's been all these years and we still don't know a lot of details about it. And we were kind of like, yeah, why, you know, like, I mean, it's a horrifying case. We felt like, why has it not been solved? What's going on with the investigation? And there was so much conjecture and interest online, but not a lot of like hard facts. Gotcha, gotcha. Welcome back, Big Blue. Um, um, I hope uh, the FBI treated you well. Yeah, Nick, I, I got, I stole something from them. <laughs> the Drunk Turkey Show beanie in the house, Big Blue edition. Yeah, the Big Blue edition. Uh, <laughs> And so um, I've heard uh, a lot of the, uh, the the information, seen a lot of the information you guys put out there. Uh, the I believe it was what the Ron Ron Logan search warrant, the uh, Keegan Klein transcript between his conversation and interrogation. And uh, how surprised were you guys when Richard Allen was arrested? We it was. It was weird because we we heard about an arrest like two days in advance um, mm -hmm. from a source that we trusted. So it wasn't like we were doubting it, but we also we didn't like we didn't feel comfortable going that much out on the limb because we didn't have a name. We didn't know what the heck was going on. So we actually had like a few days where we were like, you know, doing normal things, going to Target, but basically being like, you know, like what is happening um and and just it was it was kind of like it was a very weird experience and it was shocking because it was a name we hadn't heard before yeah richard allen he was not on our list <laughs> and we have a lot of great sources and none of our sources had heard of him either this seemed to happen very very quickly yes it, it seemed like it it seemed like the police had some information that they were holding close to the vest uh, at least for 
our information at this point is the unspent round. There could be more information that they that we're not aware of that that is out there that could also tie Richard Allen to the uh, to the arrest. Um, but there's one thing that that kind of you know sparks my curiosity is was he by himself or did he do this alone? It appears that uh, throughout the entire time that this investigation has been going out that Doug Carter has, um, or, or the Indiana State Police and the uh, Indiana Defense or Prosecution has alluded that there's potentially another person involved. I think they even said that with sealing the uh, one of the uh, probable cause affidavit was one of the reasons for doing that. Do you guys still feel that there is somebody else involved or do you think that it was just Richard Allen? Yeah, it's a great question. And yeah, absolutely the question on everyone's minds after those statements from police and law enforcement. At this point, I think personally, we're open to anything. Um, I think what needs to happen at some point um, and what hopefully the prosecution is working on is basically like having a coherent narrative of the crime. You know, if he acted alone, what exactly happened? What led to this? If he acted in concert with others, whether directly in the crime or in like other crimes that maybe surrounded it, what did that look like? And I mean, ultimately what's gonna happen with Alan is going to be, you know, focus the focus of his trial essentially. And they're not, you know, if they don't have evidence to implicate other people, even if they suspect it, that may go unresolved for now. And it's certainly very clear that the, the investigators continued to believe other people were involved and they're still aggressively pursuing that. And in fact, uh, the count of murder upon which uh, Richard Allen was charged was basically a felony murder, which means he could be found guilty technically of committing a felony murder, even if he did not personally kill somebody. He could be found guilty if uh, the deaths occurred as part of a felony that he was part of. And I think we kind of keep our minds really open on stuff like this because, you know, Allen is, is, is innocent until proven guilty. So we kind of leave headspace for him being innocent and possibly being guilty of uh, him acting alone, other people being involved. Like we're not really uh, partisans about any of those theories, but I'd say we're very interested in the fact that police and prosecutors have been saying we're still looking essentially. And like that really interests us because I think in cases where it's like we got him, then it, the investigation's over and you just go for trial. But that doesn't seem to be what happened here. Got you, got you. So do you, do you guys find a connection or have you heard of a connection between the search in the Wabash River after the talk to Keegan Klein and the search warrant for the search of Richard Allen's house? Those were pretty close together. There's some rumors they were connected. There's some saying that there wasn't. What are your thoughts and theories or, or thoughts or, or what you've heard on that? Definitely. Um, yeah, our, our understanding is that they were not connected. Um, that's that's our understanding at this point, based on what we've heard from sources and based on sort of what we're knowing about things going on. Um, it's it's a hell of a coincidence because of the timing, right? You know, one thing happens and then the other. Um, but the way it felt to us was that the Allen lead kind of came up very quickly and was not necessarily as a result of anything with uh, Klein, essentially. Yeah, and so rumors are that I guess they uh, didn't find anything in the search. So frustrated, they went and kind of looked at everything over again, found Richard Allen's statement and kind of put him there at the scene. Um, you guys were at um, Richard Allen's house, I believe, correct? Yeah. And you guys walked to the back. Did, 
was there a shed back there? Did the shed appear to be disturbed? There was a shed. Yeah, there was a shed. I don't remember it looking disturbed. Do you? I don't believe it did. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. But did, um, obviously, yeah. law enforcement is, uh, can do a search and do it in a subtle way. That you know, they're not going to go in there necessarily and tear something apart. Mm-hmm. Did anything look out of place? No, it really looked to me like a suburban backyard. We didn't do an extensive search. We kind of were just like, oh, wait, is anyone back here? And then we're like, get out. (laughs) So uh, it's very possible we miss things, that is to say. But um, things look pretty. I mean, if you didn't know that you were in the house or in the backyard of the house of a person who was just arrested for the Delphi murders, I think you'd just be like, oh, it's the chill, normal, you know, little house, essentially. Yeah, very quiet. Hi, Blue. Do y'all have any questions? Um, yeah, I was going to ask. Um, be, um, since they still have the tip lines going and everything, do you think they're still looking for more um, solid evidence against Richard Allen? That's a great question because it's like the investigation is still ongoing, and that mm-hmm. kind of tells you that either they want more or they want to know, you know, if somebody else is involved. And I don't feel like we really have a sense of how strong the case is against Alan as is. Um, frankly, I think we commented uh, that we felt that there were aspects of the probable cause affidavit for his arrest that were a little felt a little bit thin or maybe raised some questions. That doesn't mean the case is weak because there could be a lot of things behind the scenes that are like really solid that we just don't yeah. know about yet. So it's like... Basically, if you read the probable cause affidavit, the, the most important piece of evidence that they outlined, and I think we've alluded to it, was that there was an unspent uh, uh, bullet basically found near the bodies of the girls. And they had this uh, shell examined and it looked to their expert as if it came from a gun owned by Richard Allen. And we've talked to a number of ballistics experts and they gave us kind of different opinions. Different opinions. <laughs> uh, some people said, no, you can't do that. The guns are mass produced. And uh, those markings would look the same from any number of guns. And, and then others said, no, you can't identify it based on that. And so if that's their big evidence at the trial, uh, mm-hmm. there's some concern that may not be enough. Uh, now, for all we know, there's other evidence they already have that they didn't reveal in the probable cause affidavit or they may still be actively searching for still more evidence. I'd say that like if people have stories or people have some sort of interaction with Alan, you know, whatever that might be, I think, you know, that would be something police would be interested in hearing about and they should come forward. I know for us personally, we've interviewed a lot of people who knew him and um, a lot of, I mean, a lot of it's just very kind of like no red flags. So that's interesting. Like nobody, like I, we really kind of, tried to talk to as many people as possible. And naturally we just want the honest truth. We don't want to make him look bad or good or anything, but from my assessment, a lot of the interactions with him have been good from people we talked to. Our next big chance to learn more about the evidence they have against him will come at the bail hearing. Because basically the bail hearing or the bond hearing, the -hmm. state of Indiana has to offer up evidence to show like there's enough reason to keep this guy in prison or jail uh, and they have to have evidence more than what they have in the probable cause affidavit. 
So what is likely going to happen when that hearing occurs is that one of the investigators is going to testify and offer more details and more evidence. Now, originally that hearing was scheduled for next week, but it looks like it's going to be postponed, yeah. unfortunately. For us, we're um, curious about yeah, it. Yeah, we want to know. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, real quick, we have a $10 um, super chat from It's a Criming Shame. Thank you so much. Love and support from Sunny Aspen and Alexa and Deb. Thank you, guys. We appreciate thank you, guys. You, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so you guys seen Richard Allen in person. Uh, apparently, he, from all indications and description of his appearance, he seems like a very small man. Do, do you guys think that is he physically capable of well, the bodies were what was described that the bodies were moved. Uh, one of the girls wasn't wasn't a very small girl. So uh, does he look physically capable of committing this type of crime without any, uh, I guess, the evidence of him being there? There's no scratch wounds or or any of those things as far as from what I understand, as far as DNA underneath the fingernails, things of that nature. Uh, do, do you, uh, did you all see his uh, did you all consider his physical appearance as a. Uh, uh, possibility as a defense. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. He's definitely very small. That was our assessment of him standing next to like, you know, the cops guarding him, especially he just looks like a very small man. But I mean, I tend to think like appearances can be deceiving and without knowing, without having talked to anyone who's like, oh, he was really had physical problems and maybe was not very strong. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. And I think when we add into that, the factor of like, now we know there was a gun involved, at least in like possibly intimidating the girls. That opens the possibility of, I think everyone wants to think that they would fight in the situation. But when you have another, your best friend with you, that like if you do the wrong thing, they could get hurt. Um, and then the fact that, you know, it's teenage girls who are like, maybe if I comply, you know, it, it'll end better. I, I kind of think that you didn't, this doesn't necessarily have to be like a very strong, physically imposing person. And, and one thing I think is important to keep in mind is that he did retail work. And one aspect of it, we've talked to some people who worked with him would be like unloading things from a truck and uh, merchandise and stuff. And if anyone out there has done retail work, you know, I've done it at certain times in my life. It can be physically demanding. And if you're doing that regularly, maybe you're in better shape than you look. Got you. Got you. And um, <clears throat> so you guys also were uh, out there in Delphi. You guys, I assume you guys walked the trail and drove around in the area. There's been one question that has kind of boggled my mind about um, the, the probable cause affidavit. And it's the fact, and I'll pull this up real quick. Uh, it's the fact that he is seen possibly driving this direction towards the old CPS building on the uh, is that three County Road 300 North. He's driving um, <clears throat> westbound. I couldn't understand why he would be heading from this direction. It, it, some folks were saying that that it might be a faster route from his house down here to go this direction up and around versus the traditional route here. It appeared that if you, you know, for me at least, when I read the probable cause affidavit that the uh, juvenile witnesses saw him walking at a uh, fast pace so it appeared that he was trying to be there by a certain time uh i don't understand why he would take a significantly longer route to get there that, that's an excellent point 
that's something that uh, we've talked about too. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And certainly if I was a defense attorney, that's something I would, I would bring up. It doesn't seem like that a logical route. That's possible. the reason for it. We just don't know. What do you think? Yeah. It's like, also like I'm so geographically turned around. So anytime I'm looking at maps of I'm just, what, you know, basically so I'm <laughs> the worst person to comment on this and I may get it wrong. So just caveat, but I, I tend to think that that is odd. And I think what you highlighted too, the, like the rush in which he was to go to a certain direction. I mean, that tells that tells us something about the crime, in my opinion. That like what like what exactly is the rush, or what you know? Are you targeting these specific girls, or is there some sort of reason that that is you know you are in a rush at that moment? Um, but yeah, driving that way doesn't really make a lot of sense unless there's some stops. And and people have asked us like, was he at work that day? And like we don't know anything about like any prospective alibi for Alan. So like I'd be very curious to know like what. I mean, it'd be, I mean, the defense, I'm sure, is going to have to at least engage with that to a certain degree. Like, where was he that day? Or is there anyone who can tell us, like, where he would have been coming from, I guess? Well, the probable cause affidavit says that he, he says that he was there at 3 o'clock, I believe, for two hours. Yeah. And so, um, uh, or at, I think it was, no, it may have been 1.30. But either way, he's, he puts himself at the scene during the time. Of the incident, and and I, I we we've pointed down the uh, the plots on the map and and the time frame in which the juveniles were walking in one direction. They have a timestamp photo of where they were at on a on a uh, on a bench. We have a guy that walked the trail, so we have a, an idea of how long it takes. And so it makes it pretty difficult for it not to be anybody but Richard Allen. Uh, once you put all the time spots on there and what the witnesses are stating and when you have the actual corroborating evidence of the timestamps from the pictures and and the Hoosier uh, Harvard store uh, video, it kind of kind of makes it seem like it can't be anybody but him. Um, have you guys well coming from that direction, the only thing that I could think of uh, or maybe not the only thing, but one thing that I could think of is a direction or reason why is Ronald Logan's house is in that direction from from there uh did you guys ever find a connection between or have you guys seen a connection between ronald logan and uh, uh richard allen no uh just other than the fact that they're both you know men who live in delphi um we've not you know we've definitely asked um yeah. also i'll also note this for what it's worth it's it's been very hard to find um friends of allen like in other cases, we've like, oh, a bunch of people knew this guy, or here's his friend group, or at least they could identify those were his close friends. And for him, we haven't really, we've identified coworkers. We've not really identified people who were close to him. So it's been hard to like possibly ask about connections to other figures in the case. Like you mentioned, Ron Logan, right. we, we've not found anything. Or the clients? No. no con- I the believe they lived thing- in the same city at one point, didn't they? Yeah, it, it, spot on. It basically the only thing we found with the Kleins was geographical. So he's from Mexico, Indiana originally, and they're from Peru, Indiana, and those are right next to each other. And a lot of actually, we talked to people who were like had mutual like one degree of separation essentially, but nobody who's like yeah, you know they they all knew each other. No, nothing like that. Got you, got you. Uh, you guys have any questions? Yeah, I was gonna ask them. Or are they gonna be at the at the hearing next week? Uh, anytime there's a hearing, we're gonna be there. 
Uh, Unless it, something terrible happens. <laughs> it, it's actually frustrating because it's a tiny courtroom. So in order to be there and guarantee uh, a seat, you have to uh, show up extra, extra early. So we usually get there a few hours before the court even opens. Now, it looks like uh, the hearing that was scheduled for next week is actually going to be postponed because the defense filed a motion saying uh, we need more time. We haven't gotten all the information from the prosecution yet. Uh, there's a lot of pages for us to go through in order to prepare for this. So it looks like it's going to be delayed. Yeah. But whenever it is, we're definitely going to be there. Especially this next hearing is going to be pretty important. We're kind of expecting a lot from the bond hearing. I mean, maybe we're wrong, but we're, we're thinking we, we all might learn something. And I think with, uh, but with uh, the, some people have wondered like, why, why has the prosecution not gotten them all the discovery yet? I think, I think it's a really, it's a huge case. It's been five plus years and um lots of tips lots of different suspects so i don't think it's the prosecution being like stalling i think it's like an enormous amount of data for both sides to deal with so i think giving everyone the benefit of the doubt on that probably is fair and like you know i think we imagine that judge gull who's the judge on this will grant the continuance because she's not going to want to be like no no just cram you know before a really important hearing i think it's going to be like yeah, take your time. And it's please. very emotional to be in that courtroom. Yeah. Because, of course, on one side of the courtroom, you have a lot of the family members of the victims, people mm -hmm. who obviously loved and cherished and, and missed those two girls. And then on the other side, you have, uh, we happened in the last hearing to sit near the uh, wife and mother of Richard Allen. And they were also very emotional. Just to be sitting there between those two sides is uh, yeah. uh, kind of a surreal experience. It, you say? it really is. And it's bizarre to me because last time we were sitting in the front row of the media side or like the, of the public side of things. And so we were like, because there was no one in front of us, we were the, like, we were in the row closest to Alan himself. And it's just like, it's really surreal to be in a room with somebody who's like, someone's been arrested for the Delphi case. I mean, I think like a year or so ago, a lot of us were, wondering if that would happen anytime soon so it's it's bizarre yeah because we were thinking about may, maybe going out there but i'm not sure if you can only get entrance with a press pass or something like that so we're trying um, to figure that you, out. you don't need a press pass no. but you have to get there extra early yeah i think there's only uh correct me if i'm wrong maybe about 70 seats in the courtroom yeah and they save about 20 of them for family either family of the victims or family of uh, Richard Allen. And so that means there's only about 50 seats and there's usually a long line. Well, last time there wasn't. Uh, the first time, the first hearing ever, there was a huge line. And I think some people got turned away. And then the second time, it was a bit more of a routine hearing. It only, I think, lasted five minutes in total. So that was, uh, fewer media people, fewer members of the public came to that. But the bond hearing, I imagine, could attract some more media attention. So if you do come, just come just come really early. How far, away, how far away are you from Delphi? Oh man, we're from Texas. We're, we're far. I think we want to yeah. go for more like the main one of the main hearings. Yeah, yeah. once the yeah. main trial comes out, and we, we plan on being out there. Uh, Queen of the People comes in with a three dollars super sticker. Thank you so much. So, I, had a, I, had a, I had a question. Why do y'all think the the change of venue was denied? Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting ruling. Um, they they granted part of it. So mm -hmm. basically, they're like splitting the difference. They're like, okay, we're not going to move the trial. We're going to keep it in Carroll County. 
So yep. everything will be here because it's more convenient for the families, for Richard Allen's family, and for all the witnesses. But we are going to like basically go and, you know, conscript a jury from, you know, not so far away, but kind of far away Allen County, which is where Fort Wayne is. And so mm-hmm. they kind of were like, I think, I think it was a really hard decision because I think Judge Gull had to weigh like all these different factors. Like, am I going to make all the witnesses, families all move and like on their own expense and run yeah. around to another county or are we, I mean, so I think she was just trying to like ha- have two benefits, I guess, best of both worlds. But then these jurors from uh, Fort Wayne are going to have to come down to the Delphi area and probably stay in a hotel away from their families for uh, three or four weeks, however long the trial lasts. Yeah, it's going to be a long trial and a grueling one because, I mean, this is two child murders. I mean, it's going to be, that's going to be a rough time for that jury, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think, it, it, you know, on both parties, it's going to be some sort of sacrifice. Yes. So I, I have a question uh, referencing, um, in the probable cause affidavit, there's uh, they reference muddy, bloody guy, uh, guy walking down the street. Do you think that that's going to be something that's going to be used in court? I've heard a couple of different thoughts that this is somebody who's not going to be very much used. This was just a uh, uh, that the eyewitness wasn't as reliable uh, as could be. What, what are your thoughts on muddy, bloody guy? Yeah, we've actually been talking about that a, a lot. lot and trying to do some reporting on it. Because this witness, uh, if you read the probable cause affidavit, basically says they were in uh, a vehicle. It doesn't, li- it doesn't It doesn't literally say they were in a vehicle, but it suggests they're in a vehicle on that road, 3300, uh, traveling. And as they're traveling, they see a man walking down the side of the road who appeared to be bloody and muddy. And so the first thing that came to our mind is if you're traveling in a, in a vehicle, how well can you see someone by the side of the road? And mm-hmm. can you see them well enough to ascertain if there's something on their clothes, how can you tell if it's mud or if it's blood or something else altogether? Yeah. And, and actually what we reported recently, what we confirmed was that um, that witness was also the source or one of the sources for the first sketch released in the case. So the older man sketch, So that mm-hmm. witness either, you know, contributed entirely or partially. It's not clear whether it was a, a composite that was compiled from multiple witnesses or just one. But um, that also raised questions for us, because like, how can you see the person's face? We actually did a stupid non-scientific experiment where we drove past each other while going the speed limit on a road near us. And um, I, I think we both had a hard time beyond anything, you know, like, I think we were both able to tell like general things, but I, I don't think we would have been able to really describe much beyond that. And uh, as we say, this this witness the muddy bloody witness was one of the sources for the sketch and if you go back and read the old news coverage from the time that sketch was released there's some interesting comments made by law enforcement at one point they say that this particular witness was uh not close enough to the the person to see their eye color but they were close enough to see that the eyes were not blue and what's interesting about that, first of all, that's an odd thing to say. Also, the <laughs> from a car? I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, the car thing, that makes it, that seems kind of hard. 
Uh, Richard Allen's eyes, it's not clear what color they are, but certainly in some uh, some pictures, they almost appear to be blue. Yeah, I think they're hazel. My best guess is light hazel and that they almost look kind of bluish in some. That's my, I don't know, that's my best guess. And we've had other people like talk about their, like send us pictures of their eyes and they look kind of similar and their eyes are hazel, but it's rough. I mean, and like, again, you're, are you, I mean, I guess it kind of depends. Like, are you a passenger or are you driving? If you're driving, I almost, I mean, I'm a very paranoid driver. I'm keeping my eyes on the road. Um, I guess some people might be, you know, looking around, seeing what's going on, but uh, yeah, that was, we really, and again, we know each other. So we know what color each other's eyes are and like, you know, right. but we still were not able to like make out those details if we were being honest. And obviously at least the time they released the sketch, uh, they found uh, the person credible and they found the person credible enough to include it in the probable cause affidavit. I think it's an important witness because if you're able to place someone at the scene of the crime who is dressed as Richard Allen says he was dressed. Yeah. And if that person uh, had clothes that were bloody, that's pretty significant. And if I was a prosecutor, I'd want the jury to hear about it. So I would imagine they would want to present this witness. It could be pretty important. Now you said that the uh, the sketch was a composite, and I think I've well, that's possibly a composite. I think I've heard the police describe it as a composite. Is it possible that the eye color came from the three juveniles? Do you guys know when that ju those juveniles came forward? If that was somebody that came forward before that sketch, or was that someone those three juveniles afterwards? Or you all not know? We don't know. We don't know exactly when the juveniles came forward. We honestly, some of the press uh, coverage gives hints about when the sketch uh, witness came forward, uh, but they kind of con contradict each other. Some indicate that it's like a group, you know, like several people contributed to it. And then others indicate that it was like one witness. So it's, it's one of those things is like a Rorschach test, you know, you're just kind of like, what, you know, and that's one of the things with uh, the Delphi case, oftentimes there's like contradicting information. So we, we kind of just hedge by saying like, we don't know whether she, cause we know they use the, you know, she pronouns in the, in the affidavit. Right. We don't know whether she was part of a larger group. And also I didn't know this. I thought composite sketches always referred to multiple witnesses, but apparently I was like reading composite sketch textbooks. Apparently there can be one eyewitness. And, and the composite mm. refers to like bringing together different facial features as opposed to different testimony. I didn't know that. I was really surprised by that because I was like, well, I, <laughs> I've definitely interpreted it differently based on that word. And we've seen some rumors online and elsewhere about this witness possibly having credibility problems. Mm. A lot of rumors online are spot on. A lot of rumors online turn out to be false. We are spending some time this week trying to run those down and get with the back. Yeah. So I know that there was uh, two different, the, the sketches were done by two different agencies. Who did the first one? The first one that was released, which is the older man sketch, was done by the FBI. And then the second one that was released, which was actually the first one made, was done by the Indiana State Police. So how's that con for confusing? The first one released was the second one made, and the second one released was the first. Yeah. So the the, the old man though, <laughs> that one was done by the FBI, right? Yeah, the older man sketch right. was done by the FBI. The FBI was looking at Ronald Logan, correct, as a possible suspect. They they did the search warrant on his house. 
yeah, that would definitely indicate that they were, you know, at least involved to that degree in in the Logan um, search. We we know that there's been some speculation. Was there a, like a dichotomy of like, oh, ISP versus Carroll County versus FBI? Do they all have their own suspects? I don't know if we know how much disagreement there was, um, but definitely at least the FBI provided resources, and you know, the FBI agent who wrote that probable cause affidavit also had extensive, you know, experience in terms of like crime, sexual crimes against children, online crimes against children. So that seems like interesting that it was someone with that expertise writing it, looking at um, Logan in March of 2017. Right. Yeah, because I have a little bit of theory on the sketches. I think that the sketches was done in a certain way to try to provoke um, jog somebody's memory that may have seen someone on the on the trail. You know, the FBI were targeting Ronald Logan. So I thought, you know, they they purposely put out an older sketch to target that memory and or of um, someone's memory or, or, or somebody may have seen someone. And then in 2019, did that sketch, the 2019 sketch that came out, uh, was that made before the interrogation with Keegan Klein? Yeah, the, the sketch that was released in 2019 was actually uh, created within, I think, weeks, if not days, of the oh, crime. okay. So it was gotcha. made very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha, you got gotcha. Kagan was uh, arrested in, uh, well, he was first, the house was raided in February of 2017, a few days, you know, about like a week or so after the murders. But then he's arrested in August 2020. Got gotcha. you. Gotcha. Yeah, because I, I thought maybe perhaps they were looking at a different angle that they were thinking it was Ronald Logan. They cleared Ronald Logan, now started to look at the Kleins, and that's why the, the sketch changed. That that was basically my theory on it. I was kind of wondering what your thoughts it's on that would be. Yeah, it's certainly possible. It would explain some things. But we don't know for sure. Gotcha. Do you guys think that um, Keegan Klein is involved in some form or fashion, or do you think that these girls were just a victim of two separate heinous crimes? Um, I, I guess, I, I mean, as much as it pains me to say coincidences do happen, even in high profile cases, that's hard for the mind to grapple with, certainly hard for me to grapple with. That being said, I, I really would like to know more about um, what was going on with Anthony Schatz and who that profile and the people who ran that profile was in contact with. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd want to know a lot more before I feel like we could definitively say we're not very yeah. interested in that angle. Anymore. And I keep going back to a point you made earlier, which was it appeared as if the probable cause affidavit, the witness appeared to be suggesting that the man they saw was like rushing to get to a particular place at a particular time. And if that observation that the witnesses made is accurate, it suggests he had some sort of foreknowledge that those victims would be there at that time. And so that raises the question of, well, how could he possibly have known that? And I'll say, like, you know, sometimes I think people expect, like, oh, if someone else was involved, that means they were out in the woods that day and physically participated in the killings. And I think I think everybody, I'm sure, can imagine scenarios where, like, information is shared in a way that leads to the crimes, but it's not necessarily as direct as, like, an accomplice on the scene. So, I mean, I think... I think we just tried to keep an open mind. If it turns out the Anthony Schatz was just a uh, a red herring that has nothing to do with it, it was just a really disturbing catfishing scenario that ended up having no bearing on what happened. 
well, I mean, that's, that's horrible that there's so many horrible people out there and these girls had the misfortune of interacting with two of them separately. But um, I think we're, we're still very highly interested on where that's going, especially in light of the comments made by the police and prosecutor. For sure, for sure. Thank you, Alexa, for the $5 super chat. And that was a question I asked. I didn't read it well. I asked, apparently it was the same one. Um, what were you gonna say, Hannah? No, I said thank you. So, Alexa. so <clears throat> how strong do you guys, or how confident do you guys feel in this uh, case against Richard Allen at this point? Um, and we'll be transitioning into Brian Koberger and Idaho 4. Uh, do you guys feel, which case do you feel is stronger, Brian's or Richard Allen's? I don't know if we can comment on which case is stronger because we, I mean, we always liken the Delphi case in particular to like, uh, this is kind of stupid, cheesy metaphor, but like we're, we're out, it is, it's like we're outside a house and maybe one room is lit up and then the other rooms are dark and like you can't really see everything. Or maybe this house is upstairs you can't see into. So right. I feel like there could be a mountain of evidence or a dearth of evidence and we wouldn't really know about it based on what we know right now. So I'd say, but I can conclusively say that the PCA in the Idaho case is a lot more detailed and, um, you know, on the surface convincing than that in Indiana. I don't think that means that there's no evidence against Allen and, you know, there's nothing going to come of it. I just think that on the surface, the way those things were put together shows uh, it, it just seems a bit uh, thinner in Delphi, I guess. Yeah, I, I would agree that the PCA in the, in the Koberger case appears to be stronger. It appears to really box him in. You read the Allen PCA and maybe they have stronger evidence that, that they haven't revealed. But it's it you it's easy to come up with ways to try to explain away some of the evidence they have against him. Yeah, and like and that's not just our opinion. Like we've talked to multiple defense attorneys, prosecutors, like on the show and off the show, and they've universally had a similar assessment. Sometimes they're more, you know, like, like there, there's nuance there, but I think generally they're like, um, you know, that that's very hard to come back for Koberger for that for right. that PCA. Whereas Allen, they're like. They might have more, they probably do, but a defense attorney could make hay out of this, this, and that, basically. Yeah, Although Alan places himself at the scene in a way that is, you know, that does raise a lot of. I think he, he placed himself at the scene. The gun, uh, the, the, the unspent bullet is another nail. And then the eyewitness, maybe it's, it'll be credible. We'll see. Yeah, I think I think the timeline's the one that's gonna do them in. You know, the witnesses yeah. being them from the beginning, and you know, um, he was the only one actually at that point by his own mission wearing what the witnesses uh, said that was they were wearing that he was wearing. So it's a it's an uphill battle for him at this point. Yeah, yeah, I think I think uh, I I personally see we've been covering the Idaho Four and. Um, I think that I think I like um, the Delphi case more uh, against Richard Allen than I do Brian Koberger. I think there's a lot of things that can be explained for Brian Koberger's case. And there's a lot of questions in Brian Koberger's case. I think they got it right. I'm, I, I don't want anybody to confuse that. I think the police definitely got it right. But I do have some concerns. Uh, and, and you guys looked at the um, 
a lot of the legalization side of Koberger's case, um, the search warrant for the cell phone pings. I have a concern about that. Um, what? I don't understand how they had the evidence to get the search warrant. The only thing they had was a height weight and somebody with bushy eyebrows and they had a white Elantra in the area. Do you guys typically think that that would be enough to go and get a search warrant for somebody's cell phone data? I, I have a little bit of concern about that as well. And of course, if another judge looks at it down the line and says, well, you know, it was a mistake for you to give this. There's not really probable cause. And that means all that evidence is thrown out. And we've seen mm -hmm. that happen in some cases here with uh, some unfortunate results. So yeah, I would say to a certain degree, I share those concerns. Yeah, that was one thing that I, I saw that and I was like, man, this is, this seems kind of the way they got their, a lot of their evidence uh, is based on some very loose witness statements and, and grainy pictures, um, even even the pings, even if they were admissible, I think at one point he pinged in Moscow when he wasn't there. How reliable do you guys think that those are um, those pings are that put him around the Moscow residence twelve times? Yeah, I, I we're the wrong people to ask probably because I think we've been wondering that too um, in terms of like technology. I think. Um, I don't know what I just know from just kind of a lay person's um, imagining of this, I guess. My understanding was that the pings, like if you watch like crime shows, or you're watching Dateline or something, you kind of find out, oh, it doesn't tell us exactly where the person is. It tells us what right. tower they're closest to. But I also understand that there may be different types of pings or maybe different types of um, ways to track a location. So I don't want to say that's universally true or in this case, but I mean, any good defense attorney is going to be looking at those questions and saying like, okay, well, does this literally mean he's like outside in front of the house? Or does this mean like he's in the neighborhood? Because we can explain that doesn't mean he killed them. But it's right. harder to explain like he's in the house with his phone or, you know, whatever. So I think well, one thing, one thing that, that uh, the Gonzalo's dad came out with was uh, he said that when he was in the vicinity of the house, the Wi-Fi linked to his phone that's one thing that uh, that we were like and the router the router linked to his phone i think so that's one thing we we're wondering i was wondering if that actually tracks it i heard that before um i i don't i don't put a lot of not that i don't put a lot of weight into that or what he said it's very possible but in, in my opinion when we when i google searched how the router works it doesn't track who's around that could connect to it. It just throws out a signal that can be connected to. And so if if he connected to it, then that would mean it was either a public router or it was a uh, he had the password given to him from somebody. And so then that could complicate things as far as him possibly ever being in that residence if he had the password to the Wi-Fi. Um, there was we've had a lot of questions about. Uh, certain language that's in some of the uh, uh, documents. And I'm glad that you guys are here. Uh, a lot of it being of a possible uh, informant or codified or code another person involved. Um, do you guys, I, I, I listened to your podcast on it earlier and you said that, that it could be boiler point for those that don't understand. Could you explain what boiler point means? And have y'all seen that type of verbiage in a lot of the uh, 
the cases that you guys can go and pull records on? Uh, certainly. Uh, so lawyers, I hate to admit it, we can be very lazy. And so if you, if you sometimes go online and anybody can actually go online and say, uh, give me a sample of a will or give me a sample of a divorce agreement or whatever. And then you can just take the, this sample document, copy it and paste it into a new document and just put in new names. And so when we talk about uh, boilerplate language, that's what we mean. We're basically someone is just taking a standard form where you request certain things and just strip out the names and put in new names or new addresses and whatever. It's a quick and easy way to do it. And when we're talking to defense attorneys, like notably criminal defense attorneys, like we've asked them things like, do people use like just boilerplate, uh, you know, it was, it was discovery requests essentially. Just because we were like in Delphi, we saw some weird stuff where they were asking about confidential informants and like grand juries. And we were like, did we just miss like <laughs> something really <laughs> huge in this case? Like what, what's been going on guys? And then they were kind of like, honestly, that looks like just boilerplate. You want to put that in just in case they have something, but you're thinking they probably don't. But I think, you know, lawyers also are very meticulous. If it may be lazy, meticulous people because they want to ask for everything um, the, the prosecution has to give the defense everything through discovery, but I think the defense also knows that they want to make sure that they're holding the prosecution to that so they're not using any, you know, oh, well, you didn't, you didn't ask for it. And so, yeah, we have seen that sort of language in other documents. And yeah, the, notably Delphi. And again, that was something we were just like, for like a hot minute, we were both like, oh my goodness. But um yeah, we, we learned other people who looked at it kind of like that doesn't really sound like anything's going on. It really more sounds like they're just covering their bases. And that's how we interpreted it in Idaho. But we could be wrong. I mean, there there's always, you know, possibility for a big twist that'll surprise everybody. But it's just mm -hmm. more of like what's likely at this point. And it's probably the boring answer is that it's boilerplate. Got you. Got you. Yeah, because uh, a lot of counter questions about it is um, the fact that it appears that uh, that there might be somebody that the, the prosecution doesn't intend on bringing up. And one of those persons might or reasons could be because the person has passed away. Now, I don't want to go down any conspiracy theories as to who that person is or whatnot, because at this point, there's no evidence of that. However, would that be a reason to have that wordage or verbiage in there if they did have a co-defendant who had passed away? Yeah, that would be one uh, explanation. And and also we did notice in, because we looked through some of the Idaho criminal rules and because we were really like, they are mentioning this like confidential informant angle or like co-defendant angle a lot. And mm -hmm. one thing it said when with the prosecution, because at one point basically the prosecution said in their response to the defense's request for discovery, they basically said, we don't have to give you names of confidential informants. So we looked into it more. We were kind of like, is that a tacit admission that they have one? And in the rules, I believe it said something to the effect of like, just because we're denying this doesn't mean we have one. It just means that you don't get this by the rules of discovery under Idaho law. So we were like, okay, that answers that question. It's, um, Rules. Lawyers being <laughs> lawyers. That's <being> <laughs> how we make our living. Yes. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing people for a living. <laughs> for sure. And uh, <clears throat> so 
Yeah, you know, when we look at the case, I think that the DNA on the on the sheet is pretty damning against Koberger. The pings, if they're, you know, reliable and eligible to be used, because like I said, I, I have a big concern about this, the the uh, evidence to get that um, information. Um, I think they do have a solid case. I think they got their guy. I do have some concerns. There's another point to it was... Um, I guess they looked for him and they found him based on the license plate and um, they have him on video. The one question that I have is they have him pinged at his house at 242 and leaving around 247, but also have him on video two miles away at 244. Like if the uh, unique identifier is that there is a uh, missing front license plate, and you have him at his house and another white vehicle without a front license plate somewhere else that could bring in some reasonable doubt. I think they found something about 22,000 vehicles in the area that were somewhat the you know same style of vehicle uh, that concerned me. And, and, and the last thing that had concerned me was the direction of travel when he's um, when he's going to the, the, the victim's house, he's traveling. Uh, from East Moscow West when Pullman's West. And so those things kind of concerned me. Um, are, are those things that you, you would see a defense bringing up and possibly using to bring up reasonable doubt? I, that's a question I ask Kevin constantly with like a lot of the cases we cover that have like not, you know, quite gone to trial yet. Like, Oh, is the defense going to make a big deal about this? And I think the thing he always says is like the defense is like the, the, the classic criminal defense is like poke holes in everything, like use everything you have because like they're up against the investigative power of the state. I mean, that's an awesome power in the traditional sense. And they're just going to be, you know, like, how do you explain this? How do you explain that? And some of this could come down to if they have experts um, you know, which does the state's experts or the defense's experts, who, whose story sounds better for a jury, essentially. Um, so I imagine they would bring all of that up. Yeah, it was kind of like, uh, think about it, it's kind of like a bar fight where two people are <laughs> drunk, fighting each other. They use absolutely anything they can uh, in the fight. So if they think this would be, work to their advantage, they would do it. And remember, the prosecution has to win 12 jurors. The defense just has to come up with something that will change the mind of one person. And if they can keep one person from agreeing with the prosecution's case, then the defense has done their job. Yeah. And Ann Taylor is is uh, Koberger's defense. And like our understanding, we did some research on her. Is she's a very reputable defense attorney in that area, especially. So, you know, he certainly has competent counsel from, from what her reputation indicates. So she'll be taking all of that into consideration. And as you said, it doesn't like the evidence doesn't have to add up to like Koberger's a nice guy and everyone you know gives him the thumbs up. It just has to add up to like, could you could you feasibly see another scenario in which he's innocent? You know, right. and like and then you have to But that DNA on the sheath of the knife, oh, that, that's gonna be hard to explain. Away. That is really hard to yeah. come back from. And also they they actually the the police did a really smart thing with that because didn't they do something where they almost were like this isn't part of the probable cause. So if we lose this, it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. But, but, like they kind of engineered it in a way that they kind of protected them from possible probable cause issues down the road. Which yes. is, and that shows you like, they're definitely thinking about this very strategically because they, 
don't want to get in a situation where if they lose some things due to probable cause issues, that they lose everything. Yeah, and they even said it themselves. They weren't going uh, for like a like just looking for anybody. They wanted to find the person that they were going to be able to convict, and they wanted a conviction out of it, so they weren't going to release everything. So they got them. Yeah. Absolutely, that's a smart thing to do. Yeah, that. I mean, I think they got a lot of criticism. There were a lot of there were a lot of people on TV being like, "It's going cold," and 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 that's understandable. I mean, especially like you know when you have other cases that are high profile that do go cold, um, that everyone was worried. But it seems like a lot of the lack of communication or like kind of weird silence around certain things was due to the fact, as you said very aptly, like they had stuff going on and they just wanted to like wait until they had it kind of wrapped up before they made any big announcement. I think the fact that so many people were paying attention to it helped hold the, the law enforcement's feet to the fire and kept them working. Yeah. Because I'm certainly, we're both aware we've worked on other cases, but once they stop getting press coverage, maybe there's a tendency not to do so much work on them. So I think it's important and a, a good thing that Idaho got as much coverage as it did. I think it's an important good thing that Delphi's got as much coverage as yeah. it did. I think it really, really helps spur law enforcement on. Yeah. Is, is there any um any word about what kind of DNA the, the sheath had? I don't think so. Do you? I, I don't. I not. I'm not sure. But it, if there's been any developments in that, I'd be curious. I know they use like specific verbiage to like describe like oh we're certain percentage sure that this must be his father. So I'd be curious if anybody like is familiar with that sort of. DNA sort of expertise, if they could say, oh, that indicates that it's like this kind of test versus this other mm. one. So um, <clears throat> have you guys ever seen a probable cause affidavit that throws in uh, things that go against the prosecution? Like, for instance, the ping that he connected to Moscow and he wasn't in Moscow and then him traveling to Johnson, Idaho and having his phone turn off. In my opinion, that only shows, uh, what is it, habit, that he, he drives around and turns his phone off and drives around for a long period of time. He did it the night of the, uh, the murders. He did it a couple of days later. Uh, it didn't show anything as to why he was in Idaho, in Johnston, Idaho, or Johnson, Idaho. Do you, do you guys don't, do you guys find that odd for that stuff to be in the probable cause affidavit that they stuck in there? Yeah, the short answer is yes. Uh, obviously, of course, it's the job of the prosecution. They have an, a responsibility in the course of discovery to turn over everything they have, even bits of information that might tend to help the defendant. But typically, right. they don't do that in the probable cause affidavit. In the probable cause affidavit, they're trying to do make the strongest case possible that the person they want to arrest is guilty. So I found that a little unusual. So it's what it's the one answer is like, they just were really sloppy and put it in for no reason or, or they're being strategic about something that it's hard to kind yeah. of put together right now. And I'd be curious if anyone had any like theories about like what exactly that could do. Gotcha. Gotcha. We have a $2 super chat. Uh, we have brown, gray, blue, red, y'all. I'll show you guys the beanies before we're all out. I uh, appreciate you guys interested <laughs> in our beanies. Uh, thank you so much for the $2 super chat, uh, that, Sissy. We appreciate thank it. You, thank you. I had a, I had a question. Uh, um, I was going to ask from a scale for one to 10, 10 being the best. Um, what do y'all rate those um, Coca-Cola, Mexican Coca-Cola drinks right there? 
11. <laughs> they're so Jesus good. Christ. They're amazing. Wait, she, wait. When, when I, I met her, when I met her, she never had Mexican Coke before. No, I hadn't. I was just like, well, it's just going to be the same thing. And no, it's so much better. It's so much better. Oh my God. What have I been doing? And you mentioned you guys are down in Texas. And of course, there's some great Dr. Pepper down in Texas. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That's what that's Texas, I make a point to get that Dr. Pepper, which is awesome. So, and we also have Big Red. Big Red is Love Big Red. And Big Blue. We have Big Blue also, remember. <laughs> big, big Blue fights Big Red sometimes, but it's okay. <laughs> uh, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I was looking at, see, I've looked at this probable cause affidavit. There's stuff in there, in my opinion, that doesn't necessarily need to be in there. Like, for instance, they talk about a possible exit route that Brian Koberger took because it was the shortest distance between uh, Moscow, Idaho, and Pullman, Washington. It was about a 10-mile drive. However, we go based on the pings. They know he didn't go that direction. He went further south. So I don't even understand why that was even in there. And so I felt that this might be a lot of the information that they have, because if they're putting things that they don't need to, it sounds like a copy-paste component to the arrest uh, report which would indicate that there's may not be a lot of stuff in there. And and then I see the search warrant and I see what was recovered from his apartment. And I'm pretty concerned by the limited amount of things that were recovered from his apartment. What were your guys' thoughts and feelings about what was recovered in, in, in the Koberger search warrant? Yeah, they're definitely looking for, I mean, the things that stood out to me were they're looking for blood stains, essentially. I mentioned like the you know I think the mattress and like pillow casing or something um, with like the, and they note stains on it, and so they're probably I mean I'm I'm just speculating here but like looking at like does this match the victims possibly or or him if he cut himself possibly, and then the other thing was like the computer tree situation. Uh, it seemed like they were. I was a little bit surprised by the shortness of the list, but at the same time I was also looking at it from like well you got the computer tree you know, and, and you got possible blood stains, then that's, that's pretty hard. I guess it's also important to remember that the search took place uh, quite a while after the murders. And so presumably Kohlberger being a reasonably intelligent person would have done some, uh, made some efforts to do some cleaning. Yeah. If he, if right. he's guilty, if he is guilty, he's obviously innocent until proven pre- guilty. Proven guilty. Yeah, I noticed that they had they t- they re- they took in a Dickies tag. My assumption with that, because one other thing that puzzles me or concerns me is the lack of scratches, scars, cuts, you know, from his you know mug shots, things of that nature, from when he was recently arrested. My thoughts are maybe perhaps he was wearing a jumpsuit, a Dickies jumpsuit, and maybe there's material under the fingernails of the uh, the victims that could be why they pulled in the Dickies tag. Uh, the van's shoe print. Uh, are you guys concerned at all about the fact that there was only one shoe print? It wasn't spotted on the first go around. It was spotted on the second um, when they used Amino Black to bring it up to the service. Um, I, I think that the only reason they're using this as evidence is it because it kind of correlates or corroborates Dylan's story of the direction to travel that Brian Koberger left the scene in. Um, but are you guys concerned about the lack of footprints and blood trail outside of the house, things of that nature? Um, I don't 
know concern is the right word. It's definitely interesting. And we'd be interested in like, how is that explained by both the defense and the prosecution? But I mean, it certainly sounds like it was a very bloody crime. And I don't, I mean, whenever you have like a stabbing situation, that's, I mean, that's traditionally what happens. But I, as for like a, a specific imprint, I don't know. I, I guess it'll be interesting to see if the defense makes a big deal about that, about like, well, okay, we can't know this or that. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know what are your thoughts. Yeah, I think you said it well. Got you, got you. Yeah, because there was some question as to as far as and, and that goes, that was a lot of questions we had gotten as far as, hey, why isn't there a lot of footprints out there? There was a lot of blood. There should be multiple footprints. Why is there just one? Things of that nature. Uh, do you think how, how strong do you think Dylan's testimony is uh, is going to be? Do you think that the uh, defense is going to put a lot of credibility holes in her case or in her testimony? Yeah, I, I see the public already has to a certain degree. I mean, there's been a lot of, and I kind of have a different opinion about that, I think, than a lot of people. Um, also, thanks to Mark for putting on her. Yeah. Buy me a coffee. That was very sweet. Yeah, um, thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. Was that. Really, that was really nice. Um, but I, I would say that my view, I don't know. I, like, when you're in college, you're drinking, you're sleepy, you get up and you see something kind of weird and you kind of freak out maybe your first instinct is not to call the police because maybe you think, oh, somebody had like a gentleman caller over and uh, you know he, he's just leaving and it was just an awkward interaction. You might not go, especially if you're not from like, if you're not like very obsessed with true crime or you're not like thinking in that way, you maybe that's not a time where you're like, oh, something horrible happened. Yeah, we actually had a, a guy on our show, a defense attorney who said, the thing is most people in their lives are never going to see a murderer. No. That's right. not the first thing, therefore, that comes to your mind if you see someone walking out of someone's room. But you could still be scared to be like, whoa, who's that? You know? Yeah. That's how I interpreted it. But I think... Oh, we, we can say yeah, go ahead. Basically, the defense is obviously going to be trying to pick apart that. And also the fact that she saw a masked man. So it's very hard, like, from that, you know, like, to, like, get an identification, just, you know, eyes, eyebrows, forehead. Mm -hmm. Um especially not knowing the person. And they mentioned that, yes, he, you know, he has the bushy eyebrows. He's not inconsistent with this person, but obviously it's not quite as good as like, this is the face of the man I saw that night. Um, so the defense is going to be bringing that up, maybe trying to kind of uh, like, okay, how awake were you? Did you have anything to drink that night? What was going on? Why didn't you check on your friends? And um, that's all going to be fair game, I think, for the defense to go at. I think if this uh, Dylan gets in front of a jury and they hear her story, I think they're going to have a hard time dismissing it. Because this is a person who just was expected an ordinary night and she's woken up by this traumatic uh, event. Uh, I'm sure that, that moment is burned into her mind. And I think the jury is likely to find her credible. And I'm going to say this, and like I think it's totally reasonable for anybody to ask questions about any case, especially witnesses who might, you know, uh, if you say, oh, you can't question this witness's story, then you're kind of like setting people up for wrongful convictions. And like, obviously, but I think some of like the backlash that she's gotten, I think, you know, in terms of making it very personal or, you know, like she's a bad friend or blah, blah, blah. I think like without knowing the situation more, we have to reserve some judgment and remember that the people here are very, very, very young. Like these are kids right. and like, 
maybe if we all put ourselves back in like the teenage mindset or the early 20s mindset, we might not do the perfect thing in every scenario. Obviously, um, if you have a situation where people might be in danger, you'd like to think, okay, we're going to call 911 immediately. But with ambiguity like this, I think it's like better to offer somebody, especially so young, some grace about like, you know, not acting perfectly, whatever. And that I also think it's important to recognize that everything we've heard and understand about the way these four people were killed is that even if she had reacted immediately and rushed into the room, those people were already deceased. So she wouldn't have right. been living their lives. And if she had made more of a commotion, it's very possibly that possible that the killer might have made her into a fifth victim. And so at the very least, this way she lives and is able to serve as a witness who perhaps may be important in convicting her. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, the, um, apparently one of Ethan Chapman's family members came forward, I think it was the sister-in-law, and she had some details that were uh, about that uh, night, apparently after um, Dylan saw uh, Brian Koberger, she, uh, she called everybody in the house and attempted to make that phone call. Nobody, uh, apparently, uh, that's all it says was that, I guess they're questioning Dylan as well. The family of one of the victims is questioning why she didn't call 911 because she's saying that she called everybody. My my theory to give 100% benefit of the doubt to, to Dylan is, I'm thinking maybe she did see something. She started calling people, maybe Bethany answered, and that gave her some sort of false security. Someone did answer the phone. She went to sleep, woke up called the neighbor, uh, had him come over because still nobody, the other girls weren't answering. And then that's when the scene was discovered. So that's kind of my thoughts as to how that could fit into that scenario. Again, she's very, very young, immature. Uh, these, these folks were early twenties. So they're 19, I think Dylan was. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, it's crazy. Um, yeah. I know, you know, you, there's going to be questions there just because of how it ended up, but, uh, um, and rightfully so. I don't think that, you know, the police took it easy on her either. I think that she was probably, you know, suspect number one come day one, you know, especially when that story came about. And so um, I'm sure they pressured her. They don't believe that she's a suspect. So uh, what were we going to say, Jaime? No, what I find extremely weird about um, Dylan's uh, statements is that she says that she hears the talking. She hears what sounds like they were playing with the dog upstairs. But I mean, like we we come to find out now that that Xana put up a real good fight, and she doesn't mention anything about commotion, like the the, the a struggle being heard or anything like that. That's that's what I'm. Not only that, but also with with Bethany downstairs, I'm sure someone fighting for their life upstairs, you will be able to hear that in the bottom on the first floor, you know. Like, and that's that's just what it sounds. That's what I find real weird about it. I'm gonna tell you something. Like when I'm at work, and people pass out, I literally hear them hit the ground, and I, and I start looking at rooms to find out where they where they passed out at because they they they're not a small little splat. It's a big old thump. Right. So, if she was awake and she heard that commotion, she would have heard a thump more than once. I mean, the thud was heard on on the uh, video camera, fifty feet away, through a wall. So, uh, I would uh, I would assume that there would have been a large amount of noise that was coming out of that that room. Yeah. Um, 
do you guys not the seeing the images of Brian Kohlberger, his um, you know, mugshot? There's one where he's wearing the turtle suit where his neck is exposed, his shoulder is exposed. There doesn't seem to be any sign of scarring or anything like that. Um, in y'all's experience in investigating crimes where somebody has taken the life of another in in short closeness, do you, is that something that you would find uncommon that there isn't any sign of scratches, deep, you know, scars or any of those type of things? I think if he was like well suited up, uh, you, I mean, it would just without having a video of how everything went down. Right. I right. think it's kind of hard to say, like, we don't, I mean, if there was like, let's say like if there was a DNA of the perpetrator under somebody's fingernails, like they right. scratched their face, but no corresponding scars or, or indications that he had that, that would probably raise some red flags, but it really like beyond, we know, you know, we've heard, Oh, you know some of the victims put up a fight there was a loud noise but i don't feel like we have enough information to necessarily yeah, like say it's like that weird because what did that fight look like was it just trying to get away in like a very valiant way to like fight for your life and just get the hell out of there or was it like we're you know we're i'm fighting or is it grappling i mean you know i don't and also like without knowing much yeah without knowing much about like what each victim's attempts to get away looked like i don't know because gotcha. like I don't know if I'm sleepy. I am like really not a morning person. So like I, like I like if you're half asleep, you're in such a vulnerable spot. Or or if you're you know coming back from like having some alcohol and having fun with your friends, like you're not you're not like primed to necessarily like go into self defense mode immediately. And like I just don't know what their what the fight would have looked like. And gotcha. I mean I I have really short fingernails and stuff like that. So like if one of the girls like had long fingernails. I don't know. I'm just rambling, but it's worth <laughs> you want to know. I'm like, that's one where I'm like, I don't know. I really, the trial will be really interesting because I would hope that they would answer some of these things or like, you know, one thing that the prosecutor gets to do is like speak for the dead and also kind of tell a story about like what happened that night and what happened right. to these victims and mentioning that they put up a fight or that they tried to get away is part of also letting the jury know like that this should not have happened and these kids were brave and they tried to fight back and they tried to you know live and it's like makes it all the more tragic so i would hope that some of that narrative would go towards like or on the other side i maybe the defense is saying well there was all this you know stuff that didn't match brian so maybe he's innocent so i think hopefully right. they get to stuff like that what's that Emma? Um, do, do they have the Good Samaritan law in Idaho? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer, Junior. Yeah, I, I don't know. Would that fall? Would that fall into that aspect that they do? Um, no, with Dylan and Dylan's case, I think I think a prosecutor would probably have a hard time going after somebody who's kind of like, and you know. I, I I can understand where the anger from the families is coming from, but as far as like the state going after a 19 year old for a good Samaritan law in a situation, like I'd also be really curious, like how <laughs> were the victim, were the victim's roommates surviving roommates at all inebriated? Because to me that also factors into this yeah. because like goodness knows when I was in college, I drank way too much and I did some weird stuff. Never anything like, that. never anything like not noticing something to this degree. But I think if I'd right. gone missing, it would have been like one of those baffling true crime stories because people have been like, 
why the hell did she run into the woods? That was just something I did when I was drunk back then. But like, it kind of just, yeah. I don't know. It makes you act. Oh. You should hear some of my stories. No, please, no, please don't. Yeah. We're trying. Yeah. To, we're, we're trying to stay monetized and stuff. Yes, sir. <laughs> Jesus, somebody be him, please. He's going crazy. He's going crazy. Uh, well, I only drank water tonight. Imagine. <laughs> uh, so, with um, man, I had a question and I completely lost it. Hold on, let me think. It Do you guys have any? Yeah, ran into the woods. Do you guys have any questions, uh, Jaime? You have any questions? I think you're frozen, Jaime. Oh, no, I'm you're sorry. not frozen. <laughs> you're just not moving. No, I was reading. I'm sorry. What was I gonna ask? Oh my gosh, this never happens to me. Actually, it happens to me all the time. Um, I was gonna tell him. I was gonna tell him a story about the Mexican coke real quick before the end. Right, so, right, go, go for it. I went to visit my parents last week, and my buy, my parents buy the Mexican cokes in Mexico. So my daughter was drinking one, and she threw it away at the end, you know, the glass container. And my dad's like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you throwing away the bottle? I was like, I'm done with it. He's like, no, got to go put it back on, in the case, and we got to take it back to Mexico for the retorno, which is the return. Mm-hmm. So in Mexico, you, they refill them. They wash them and refill them. That is awesome. Didn't they used to do that? Uh, I'm so old. I remember when they used to do that here uh, in the United States. We have to save your bottles and take them to the grocery store and they'd uh, refill them. I think that's a great system. So much less wasteful. Yeah. So I remember what I was going to ask. In reference with Brian Kohlberger, oh man, it's starting to slip again. (laughs) Hold on. It's, it's there. It's there. Well, imagine, and you're sober. That's the worst part. I know, dude. I'm sober, and I'm forgetting this. Like, every, no, I, I want to say it. I want to say it, but it's not coming out. Okay, so yeah, here recently he was he was fired. Right? Uh, right. There's been a question about motive. He was uh, not here recently. He was fired. Here recently, there was uh, news that he was fired from his TA position. He was not going to be going forward with that. He had an altercation in September, uh, right? Basically, after he started, uh, there's been some allegations of sexist behavior. Um, there's been a couple of different theories, one being that he's an incel, one that being that he's a copycat trying to copycat a bunch of different serial killers that have been out there. Do you guys fall or see any of those similarities or see if there's those possibilities for Brian Koberger? I, I have a, maybe it's a hot take because maybe I, I would, if there's evidence for any of that, then I certainly bow to that. But I kind of feel like I kind of feel like a lot of news outlets are excited to get the word incel in a headline um, Mm -hmm. because that makes it, oh, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a trend essentially. And I think the copycat, everyone wants it to be, everyone wants everything these days to be a serial killer or a copycat because that makes it like connected and you can fill in the blanks and it's interesting. And I think, I mean, like that's a kind of a jaded way of looking at it. I'm not saying that it's definitely not the case, but until we are reading his manifesto saying, I'm an incel and I hate women and, you know, men in relationships, or I am, I really admire Ted Bundy. I feel like we have to withhold judgment of that before we know more. Cause I think I can understand why people are making that leap. It's certainly like, you know, somebody who's awkward around women and maybe being creepy that sounds incelish. And certainly the heinousness of the crime does bring back other cases that have like been serial killers that were really heinous, like Ted Bundy going after the, sorority students in florida but like i don't know it just feels like we don't have enough information and i'm like i'm reluctant 
I think some in the media have like made that jump really quickly and I don't get where they're, maybe it could be that they have sources in the investigation saying he's an incel that worshiped Ted Bundy, but it, from what I read, it's not, that's not clear to me. Is that fair to say? That's fair to what say. Do you, what's your hot take? I gave mine. <laughs> uh, I, I guess my hot take is I often go back. I remember right after I was in law school, I worked with uh, a judge and uh, I won't go into uh, the details, but there was a case that came up that was very bizarre where somebody did some, some terrible things. And I said to the judge, look, I'd really like to know the reason why he did this because it doesn't seem to make sense. And the judge says, does the reason matter? Because basically you're never going to be able to understand why an irrational person does something like this because you and I, we're not irrational. We're not going to be able to understand that. And even if you're uh, an incel, or even if you idolize Ted Bundy, that doesn't make what happened suddenly make sense. It's still going to be uh, inexplicable and crazy. Yeah, and like whatever justification anybody can think of for doing this, maybe if they didn't have that one, they'd find a new one if mm-hmm. different. Got you, got you. Um, <clears throat> we're getting close to the... Uh, the hour and a half mark. Um, I have one super chat. Um, but before we get to that super chat, do y'all have any last questions? I'm Air Blue for, uh, I just want to, to, I just want to jump on real quick. I do have to get going. I got to get to work and drop off my kids. So I just want to say thank you for, for Murder Sheet for being on here. And I really enjoyed your, your the podcast. I was listening to a couple of the shows and I, y'all sound like, do you have y'all came out on PPR before? Cause y'all sound like y'all, y'all come out there. <laughs> we on what on the public radio the- oh, oh no. wow thank you that's quite a compliment thank no, you so much we, that, that's really nice thank you we really appreciate it. we have not no y'all, y'all's, y'all's recordings are really clear y'all release we're very insecure about our recording quality so you've made our night um and no we just record in here we actually record over over at that desk. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. It does sound amazing. Um, Jaime, you have any <laughs> questions? Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to what's meet it, you. What's it going? I was going to say the same thing, man. Like, y'all have the perfect voice for podcasts. Um, obviously, mine's not the best. I have a real deep voice. I have a real, real, real strong accent. Um, so, like, mine's not the best. I, I know, I know, I, I know where I stand. But yours is. Perfect. <laughs> I, like I disagree. You have character, and I, I think it's good. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, but I want to say thank you for for coming on with us, and um, you know, give us your your views and your your professionalism on her. And I'm going to ask if you have questions for us. But before we do that, it's a crime. It's a criming shame. Asks who originally told the red jeep story. Yeah, great question. So the Red Jeep story is something we reported over the summer. Yeah. Over the summer. Time is meaningless. Um, Basically, uh, what we reported was that Kagan Klein was telling the police that he waited in a red Jeep while somebody else committed the Delphi murders. Mm -hmm. And we noted in the episode that the story is not that he was waiting in a red Jeep. The story is that that is a story he told police. And we mm-hmm. confirmed that. We verified that information before reporting it. So so we verified that he told it to police. That that, that was the story he told. Um, right. Whether that's true or not, we also we 
strongly noted in the episode that like Keg and Klein has a history of, you know, telling lies. And that's, I think that's a fair characterization of how he interacts with people and certainly authorities in this case. So, and so for what it's worth, Keg and Klein would not be a good source. No. If Keg and Klein called us up and said, guess what? I just told the police this. That would not be enough for us to go and report it. No. And so uh, mm. we know he told the story to police, but we, we don't know if it's true. And I think we would definitely caution people to take a, take a deep breath. And even if it sounds interesting, it could just be a story being told for whatever purpose. Yeah. So that's how that went down. I think a lot of people took that report as like, we were saying that, you know, yeah, he was in the red Jeep. And like, I think it's like, it's important to look at the kind of the packaging of it, of like, this is something he's telling police that is newsworthy because it's a pretty big story that he's telling police, but doesn't mean it's true. Doesn't mean it's true. He can, I mean, yeah, it could, he could. He has a pretty good track record of uh, lying. Yeah, he does. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that yep, about, yep, yep. about Keegan Klein. Um, do you have any questions for us? I want to know something. And I'm sorry, I should have like, looked at. Where does the drunk turkey name come from? <laughs> so <clears throat> this goes back a while. So we, we started doing podcasting uh, probably around July. And initially, it had nothing to do with true crime, like absolutely nothing. In fact, our description says that if you want to know what we are, it's probably something in between Joe Rogan meeting Pat McAfee in a bar in space. And there's there's who we are. And we got into true crime by, um, you know, some some of our viewers kind of requested it. And so we kind of went down that avenue. But the Drunk Turkey Show came from a few years ago. We were deciding to do a podcast. We wanted to talk about current events, UFOs, conspiracy theories, things of that nature, ghost stories. And we we're trying to come up with a name for the show. And it was actually I was watching um, Rocky and it was the one where uh, his 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 coach was telling him that if he took another another punch, he could be punch drunk. And so. Um, it was around Thanksgiving. And so I came up with punch Turkey and I was like, man, we're going to be called the punch Turkey show. And, um, I ended up looking on YouTube, make sure it wasn't taken. And I found a show that was called slapped ham. And I was like, man, that's too close. That's too <laughs> close. And so I was like, well, we'll do is what we call the drunk Turkey show instead of the punch Turkey show. Yeah. And our old logo, I, I actually drew it. And, um, I drew a black eye on it to pay homage to the original thought of it being called the punch Turkey show. And so it has nothing to do with absolutely anything. Uh, just like our show, it has absolutely to do with anything, but, um, but everything at the same time, because we try to talk about things that are current and, and, in and going on right now. Well, I thought you guys asked really thoughtful and well thought out questions. So, so how do you guys know each other? Yeah. Oh man, we've known each other forever. Uh, I think sixth, grade. sixth grade, yeah, sixth grade. Wow. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Um, Blue, I think we met uh, maybe eighth grade. I think. Yeah, yeah. Blue came around in eighth grade. Yeah. They, they, the thought was there was supposed to be five of us up here. It was me, Blue, Jaime, buddy of ours named Jonathan, who still says he's going to come out but hasn't. And uh, we used to have a buddy named Hugo that was part of our group, and we grew up together since we were like real little. And, um, you know, we, me and Jaime were like, you know what, let's do it. Uh, the other guys 
you know, they said they'll come on one day. And so <laughs> Big Blue said, I'll jump on. And we just started going at it. And I think a lot of people, they, they kind of can tell that we've known each other for a while. Yeah. We, we rag on each other all the time. Like, we're this is tamed, man. Like, if we're in person, we rag on each other super bad. But, you know, it's all funny games. You know, we've known each other since we were young. So, like, we know we're just playing. We're not, we don't take stuff seriously as much as we did when we were younger. That makes sense. Like when we first got started getting viewers, we got some trolls in our in our live chat that were talking smack about our appearance and stuff. And we were pulling it up because we thought it was like roast hour and it was hilarious. But we didn't understand we were supposed to take offense to it. And so (laughs) and then somebody was like, Hey, you're not supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to block those guys. I was like, Oh, all right. I thought it made the show go better. Yeah, and that, that's when we got moderators. Yeah, yeah, because it, it was getting a little bit out of control at one point. Yeah, I got. I think I've been I've been told everything under under the sun, and it's like someone was like, oh, "Okay, that's a little bit too far." I, I don't play that, <laughs> that one. I won't. I won't get offended by it, but you know that was a little bit too much, maybe for our other people in the live chat. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of weird stuff said about us, specifically over the Delphi case, and it's like it's not necessarily. I don't know. I'm sure some people make fun of our appearances. I guess that's common. But the, the big thing we get is that um, we're like secretly working for the police or something. And I always, <laughs> I always think that's kind of funny. Like, oh, we're secret police agents. Like, really, if anyone meets us, they will know that that is not, that's not weird, very awkward and not at all stealthy. So um, <laughs> bad hiring. <laughs> and we're very serious on the show. Yeah. Like, we're alive for Word. People think we're really stuck up. Like, I mean, I mean, we probably are in some ways, but like, I, I feel like people people have the idea about us that we're like just sitting there, like with our monocles and tea and mm, yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like for me, it's the whole opposite. I started off a little bit more um, loose cannon, I guess you can say, and now it's like, okay, well, you know, we're talking about murder cases, so I got to get a little bit more, you know, like, I got to be serious. <laughs> Yeah, more serious, and I gotta, you know, keep myself in check with the no, stuff I say. That's exactly our motto. Because, like, I, I mean, I Kevin's a calm, rational gentleman. I'm not. Like, I am a loose cannon, and so I know that I just go full personality on the show. I'm not gonna be able to dial it back, and it's gonna get too crazy, right? Is that fair to say? <laughs> that's fair to say. I'm gonna go on a rant. Like, it's gonna. People are gonna. People are gonna. Be, okay, I'm not. I, I'm done with that. Thank you. Um. So. I respect that. <laughs> yeah, we um, we actually came out on a pretty big platform here recently, and uh, we were we got bamboozled, and so they, they were trying to uh, come after not come after us, but talk about uh, crime sleuths in general being a, uh, I guess, hurting people or, or cases and things of that nature with their opinions and you know they they approached us as being you know looking at our show as something different and then they kind of bamboozled us and turned it around and we're like yo for one we're not really a true crime show we don't consider ourselves crime sleuths we're not trying to solve any cases we're just trying to bring the facts and what the news say so if some of the stuff we say is off then go blame the police department and the main media because that's what we get our information from <laughs> and so i don't think it turned out the way they like they uh, uh it was it was crazy have, have y'all seen anything like that where they're trying to trick you guys into something like major news media 
because it was um, one of the bigger we newspapers. We haven't had wow, that's that's insane. Also, like, geez, like I, we've, I wouldn't say we've had that happen per se. There's definitely a lot of like discourse, like with a capital D in true crime, about mm. like what's ethical, and I think a lot of the armchair ethicists have no idea what they're talking about in terms of media or anything like that. I think it's. And people don't seem to understand the legality of situations. They, they, you know, we've gotten a lot of like, oh, you guys are hurting the case by reporting on it. That does not. It's not the way it works. That's not the way. That's not how anything works. It's like the meme. You know, <laughs> you're like, no. I like. I mean, you can not like us. That's fine. That's your prerogative. But that's not how it works. And also, we believe in a free press. So, like, First Amendment is good, sure. right? Yep, yep. And so I don't know, like it's just it's just interesting. But yeah, you get we there's a lot of trolls and people out there. So I'm sorry you guys had to deal with that. That's ridiculous. Uh, you know, the way I told the guys afterwards, I was like, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Let us let them send it out to their three million followers and let them see us. So um I'm all right with it. We have a uh, five dollar super chat at from Turkey Show. Have you heard about the giants being spotted in the Mexican mountains? I Googled it, something to check out sometime. I think that was Jaime walking up there in the mountains he's about six he's about six foot four six foot two so he he seems like a giant in the mexican mountains something like sure. that i actually did hear about that and all that stuff does uh you know that interests me so like whatever it has to do with paranormal or or sightings of bigfoot or whatnot that i'm i'm all i'm all game for that but um uh i did see that video and they like they've been shutting like Get deleting that video recently. I don't know how, what's the case with it, but I haven't really looked into it. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out, see what's going That's on. That's the one that. where he's coming out of a cave, right? I believe so. Yeah, I saw that. It, it, it might be perspective. There's it's an image it where there's something coming out of a cave and it looks like a large person, but it could mm -hmm. just be perspective of a small cave and appears to be large. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other questions for us? Um, I. I guess, do you have any cases that you're going to look into next in terms of true crime? Anything on the horizon? There's one that we were considering looking into. It was a missing person out of the UK, I believe. Bully, Nicola Bully. That one's been on the radar, but. Yeah. Uh, I think I heard about that, yeah. Yeah, she went missing during the, uh, I think, a teleconference while she oh, was yeah, on the yeah, and phone. her phone was on the bench with the dog. Yeah, yeah, and the dog was seen running around. That's one that we're going to be looking into. Um, we had another one, Amy Malavik. We had uh, one of, she's a missing or a cold case killing from, I want to say uh, middle in mid 80s, somewhere around there. We've had somebody close to the case reach out to us, uh, give us some information. So we're going to try to talk about that case as well. Yeah. Um, and then here recently, we're not sure if, or here kind of local, there's been a couple of missing people that have gone. And then there's been a body that was found um not too far away from here as well that yeah. was a constable for the eagle pass eagle pass texas constable went missing was found uh naked in a ditch about 40 miles away um it's like, so, 20, it's like 20 miles away from where i live yeah yeah and so yeah those things have recently popped up yeah, and so those yeah. things we might be looking into we might also we might also be doing maybe uvalde oh yeah the shooting in uvalde the uh that that's not too far away from where we're at like mm -hmm. it's about an hour away uh 4.99 super sticker thank you so much mindwell and what is mexican coke it's mexican coca-cola not the uh not the white else. stuff not the white stuff <laughs> like not the, 
Yeah, my, my daughter, she came she came over to the house one time and um, she was like, man, I got my friend addicted to Mexican Coke. Now, I knew she was just talking about I knew what she was talking about. And I was like, yo, you can't say that out loud. And in that way, you got to say the whole word. You got to say Coca-Cola when you go around saying that. Yeah, <laughs> you can't, especially out here, in, in, you know, near the border. <laughs> um, well, I want to I want to thank you guys so much for coming on. Um, we yeah. appreciate you. We appreciate your time and and and, and you coming out here. Uh, please let everybody know where they can find you. Yeah, definitely. We're um we're basically anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're on all the major platforms. Just look up the Murder Sheet, and that's S H E E T, not not Street. Sometimes people hear Street, and then we're also on Facebook which is um, just uh, the murder sheet discussion group. And, you know, you can join the group and just, you know, chat with other people. We, you know, people talk about cases or cases we cover on the show or cases they like, they'd like us to cover. So it's, it's very well moderated and not, not too crazy, yeah. which is nice. Um, but yeah, but we appreciate you guys and thank you so yeah, much. We're oh, on, we're also on YouTube. Yeah. Duh. But we're uh, episodes. We're, we're a little bit slow in getting the episodes up. Yeah, there's a gap. There's a but like every few weeks or so, Kevin goes on a massive uh, uploading spree. So you'll get content. You get a whole lot of content, and hopefully that'll keep people sated for a while. And uh, you know, and they don't have to look at us when they watch the YouTube. Yeah, we- our, our logo <laughs> or our, our crazy bookshelves. But um, <laughs> but listen, we've had so much fun talking with you all. Um, thank you so much for having us on. We, we really, really appreciate we really it. Appreciate it. it was really, really enjoyed a, it. It was a delightful evening. Awesome. Yes, Thank you so much. Hopefully we can do this again in the future. Everybody, this this is the uh, Murder Sheet YouTube channel. They have 14.2 subscribers. Let's get them up to 14.5 or 15K. Please go out there, subscribe, let them know that you came from the Drunk Turkey Show. Exactly, man. No, I, I just, I've been listening to y'all's podcast, and man, y'all make my, my work day, even though I should have been listening to uh, at work, but y'all make my work day a lot better. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really so, now, I want I want I want y'all to like record a a, a bedtime story, and that way I can just, <laughs> y'all can put me to sleep. It, it can't be crime because that'll give us no crime, no crime. <laughs> nice children's bedtime story. We've gotten that before. That people are like I listen to your stuff before I go to sleep, and we're like, oh, thank you, but we're talking about some bad stuff. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for those that were in the show earlier asking about the beanies, the colors and things of that nature, we have gray, we have red, we that's, have... That's the made special edition. Right there. We have brown, dark blue, and then black, of course. Now, when we hit 35K subscribers, y'all, um, we'll be doing a live show and we'll be giving away one of these hats. Uh, I mean, one of these beanies, we also have the hats for you guys. So if y'all are interested, please email us. Uh, beanies are $24 shipped. Hat is $28 shipped to the 48 states that are connected. And so thank you guys again, Murder Sheet. We appreciate you guys. We'll thank see you, you next time. Uh, Jaime, you have any last words? Uh, good night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Y'all have a good night. See you until next yeah, thank time. You. Thank Bye. you so much. Bye.